As we resume our study in the book of Acts, we're at the very end of Acts chapter 4 this morning. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. And as you can tell from Sam's uh, sermon to the children, our focus this morning is going to be on the, the unity of the believers that is described for us there in verse 32. And so, so look at that verse again. Notice how Luke describes the full number of those who believed. He says that the full number of those who were believed were of one heart and one soul. So what does that mean? What does it, what does it mean to say that the believers were of one heart and one soul? Well, to say that they were of one heart seems to suggest that they, that they shared one central passion or, or ambition. Throughout the scriptures, the heart is generally considered to be the, the center of a person's life. It is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. The heart directs the will. It, it determines our, our choices, and therefore it's revealed by those choices. The things that we choose to do or, or not to do reveal what's going on in our hearts. And the heart is the seat of the emotions. And therefore it is revealed by a person's passions. What elicits joy or fear? What elicits anger or anxiety? A person's emotional responses show what is going on in his or her heart, whether good or bad. In his letters, Paul tells us of his joy over the, the faith and love of the first Christians. He also reveals to us his anger over those who preach a false gospel. And both his joy and his anger reveal to us his absolute devotion to the calling that he had received in Christ. He was a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the ministry of the gospel. And therefore, that central ambition determined his emotions. Of course, we see the opposite in the, the Pharisees, that the, that the Pharisees were angry and even willing to conspire with their archenemies, the Herodians, in order to get rid of Jesus reveals that their hearts had a very different devotion. Their hearts were absolutely devoted to maintaining their positions of prestige and power. They didn't even care if what Jesus was saying was true. They didn't even care if people were being healed. They wanted to maintain their position. That was their devotion, and it was revealed in their emotional response to Jesus ministry and the choices that flowed out of those emotions. And so to say that all the believers were of one heart seems to suggest that they all shared one passion, that they were united in one devotion. And to say that they were of one soul seems to suggest something similar. Aristotle described two people who were friends as, as having one soul in two bodies. We convey a similar idea when we speak of someone as our soulmate. 
We are of one soul with them. Your your soulmate shares with you a a view of the world, a sense of what is good and true and and beautiful, a sense of what is valuable, a sense of what is worth worth working for, a sense of the, the way to work towards it. That is what it means to be of one soul with another person, and that seems to be the kind of unity that Luke has in mind here when he describes the the church as being of one heart and soul. And of course, that leads us to our next question. If if this unity comes from a, a unified devotion... What is the devotion to which or or around which the first believers were unified? Well, again, the very fact that they are called the believers gives us a clue. Remember what has just happened in the the previous section. We are are told that all the believers were together and that they were were praying and they had been filled with the Holy Spirit and is in their devotion to Christ and to His kingdom that they are now united as believers. In fact, Paul said this explicitly back in chapter 2 when he de- described the, the church there. He told us that, that, that the church, that the, the first believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That is, to the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the King come to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. They were, they were united in their devotion to the apostles' testimony, to who Christ is. They were united in their uh, devotion to one another, to the fellowship, to the, to the common good of the church. They were united in their devotion to the breaking of bread, that is, to the gathered worship of the church, climaxing at the table, climaxing in the celebration of Jesus' finished work on behalf of his people. And they were devoted to the prayers, those those regular hours of prayer throughout the day where they would pause to stop and to reorient their life towards God's kingdom and to again seek his grace for that pursuit. This this is the devotion, the, the singular devotion that united the early church. It was because they were devoted to Jesus and to his kingdom that they were able to be of one heart and soul with one another. And of course, that that gives us a clue as to how such unity is achieved. If we would be united in this way, if we would be a body of believers united in in one heart and, and one soul, then we must likewise be devoted to Jesus and to his kingdom. It is that singular devotion that knits us together in love. Now that sounds simple enough, and and really it is. It's it's not complicated. If we follow Jesus, we will walk in step with one another. But of course, simple does not always mean easy. In fact, for, for man, it is impossible. In Adam, in our sinfulness... We have a tendency, a a bias to be devoted to ourselves and to our own kingdoms. We have a a bias to to do what is right in our own eyes, to to go our own way, and and to proudly declare that we are the captain of our own ship. And that's why it's important for us to notice that these first Christians did not achieve this unity in their own strength. This is a spiritual unity. This is a work of the Spirit in their lives. It is as they humbly throw themselves on the mercy of Christ. 
as they, as they humbly beseech the, the power of the Holy Spirit, that they are able to be devoted to Christ and therefore united to one another. We, we see that here when Luke tells us that, that right before he, he tells us that they were united, he tells us that they were filled with the Spirit. And we actually see the same thing in, in chapter 2. The description of the church as, as devoted to the apostles' teaching and devoted to the fellowship and devoted to the breaking of bread and devoted to the prayers, that, that description follows the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. And so we may say that God's people are united in heart and soul when they humbly rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to devote themselves to following Jesus and seeking first His kingdom. It is only as we, in humble reliance upon the empowering grace of the Spirit, devote ourselves to Christ and His kingdom, devote ourselves to denying ourselves and following Him, it is only in that Spirit-empowered devotion that we will be united. And seeing that, helps us to understand or, or helps us to diagnose what's going on when the boat gets wobbly. When, when unity is threatened. If God's people are not united in heart and soul, then it suggests that at least some of them have allowed something other than Jesus and His kingdom to become their first devotion. Now, I say some of them because the Scriptures make it clear that a Christian may be at odds with another person and be blameless in the matter. We actually see this in the, the Psalms. There are, there are situations in which David cries out to God and says, In this matter I am righteous. In this matter I am blameless. I have done nothing to provoke those who are attacking me. And Paul acknowledges this in his letter to the Romans when he says to them, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul understands, the, the Scriptures as a whole understand that peace may be broken even when you have not committed sin against the other person. But at the same time, the Scriptures also understand that when peace is broken, it is always the result of sin somewhere. It is always the, the result of some idolatrous devotion. James confirms this when he says in his letter, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? That, your desire, that you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. When peace is broken between people, whether it's two people in a one-on-one -on -one relationship or whether it's, it's the peace of a, of a much larger group, when peace is broken, it is because one or more of them are pursuing something other than Jesus' kingdom as their chief ambition. Someone is not getting their way, and so they're going to war. Whether that be a, a cold war of passive aggression, or whether that be a, a hot war of active hostility, doesn't really matter. They are going to war because they desire and cannot obtain. This is true when I fight with Sarah. 
This is true when I have a conflict with one of my children. This is true when, when I have an argument with, with any one of my friends or, or neighbors. If I'm in conflict, it's because one or both of us is pursuing some devotion other than Jesus and his kingdom. Now it's possible, maybe even likely, that both parties to the conflict are in sin. But one of them certainly is. When there is disunity amongst God's people, there is sin. For when we are seeking first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, we will be united in heart and soul. But when one or more of us is seeking some other kingdom, any other kingdom, our peace will be broken. Now, let me be clear. This this does not mean... That Christians who are devoted to Jesus and his kingdom will never disagree. We we have to be clear about that. It doesn't mean that we're going to agree about everything. Disunion and disagreement are not the same thing. Division and, and disagreement are not synonymous. Christians certainly may disagree. And history tells us that they certainly will disagree. But Christians must disagree in the unity of love. I I think of the friendship between John MacArthur and the late R.C. Sproul as an illustration of this. If you don't know, John MacArthur is a premillennial Baptist. And R.C. Sproul is an amillennial Presbyterian. And they both hold their views, let's say, strongly. They, They disagree sharply at certain points. And yet, they were great friends. They they were, they were able to live together in unity and to work side by side because they were both devoted to Jesus and his kingdom first and foremost. And so disagreement is possible, even probable. But if there is division and disunity around that disagreement, then there is sin. We can disagree in Christ, but if we are at war with one another, then one of us or both of us have compromised our first devotion. And I want us to to use that insight, I want us to use that principle of unity to, to think more deeply about the tensions that we are currently feeling and experiencing here at Trinity. I say tensions instead of divisions, because I believe that we have, for the most part, resisted the temptation to divide. And you need to hear me say that. I need to hear me say that. Our unity has actually been quite remarkable. It has been a testimony to the the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have, for the most part, resisted the temptation to divide. Not perfectly, of course. But substantially, we have borne with one another. We have borne our disagreements in love. We have not let our disagreements divide us. And that is a testimony to the work of the Holy Spirit among us. But our disagreements are real. And they are sometimes sharp. And the temptation to let them divide us has been buffeting us relentlessly for more than a year now. And so I want us to look closely at this principle. I want us to consider the temptations that we are facing 
so that we will be strengthened to continue standing against them. And in particular this morning, I want to look at the temptations that, to divide related to the issue of masks. We could do it with any other topic. There are, there are other topics about which we disagree. But this seems to be the one at the, the forefront, especially this morning when we are having our first mask-optional gathering outside to watch the, the live stream. A decision that was made and, and intended to, to foster peace, but, at least in some, has stirred up a measure of strife, a measure of anxiety, a measure of discontent. So I want us to look more closely at the, the various temptations to divide that we are all facing. And again, I, I use the plural intentionally. The, it is the temptations to divide because we don't all experience the same Temptation. Generally, I think we can distinguish between the temptations felt by those who, who support a mask requirement and those who oppose it. So let's, let's begin with the temptations felt by those who support a mask requirement. What is the temptation to divide? What is the alternative devotion that raises its, its head and, and calls for our allegiance? Again, I, I think there are many ways to, to answer that question, but, but certainly one of the temptations that we face that when we are devoted to a mask requirement is the temptation to devote ourselves to our reputations as people who are educated and intelligent. Those who support mask mandates often don't want to be associated with those who oppose them because they think of those who oppose them as science deniers. The, the consensus among the medical community is that masks work. Therefore, if you put yourself in the other camp, you are revealing yourself to be anti-intellectual. You are revealing yourself to be against science. And those who are for mask mandates are tempted to be more devoted to their reputation as educated than they are to unity with their brothers in Christ. Now this is tricky. Because Christians ought to be devoted to believing the truth. Truth matters. It matters to God and it ought to matter to his, his people. So, so believing something without evidence or contrary to evidence is not God-honoring. And we can argue about what the evidence is later. But let's just all acknowledge that, that believing the truth does matter. Christians ought to be devoted to the, the truth. But even if the truth is on your side, even if you're right, if your devotion to your reputation as educated and intelligent leads to division, it is an idol. If it causes you to become condescending and dismissive of the people who hold another view, if it causes you to distance yourself from them, that is sin. And let me just say, up front, this is one of the temptations that I wrestle with personally. I like to be, I like to appear educated. I like to appear intelligent. And that can cause me to be condescending and dismissive to those who disagree with me. This past week, a member of the, the body told me that I laughed at him 
in front of our entire small group, no less. The first time that he told me he didn't believe masks should help mitigate the spread of the virus. I, I remember the conversation. I, I remember the conversation because he used a, a particularly memorable illustration to explain why masks don't work. I don't, I don't remember laughing at him, but I know myself well enough to know that I probably did. And that was sin. That was peace-breaking. That was a peace-breaking that was no doubt fueled by the desire to appear educated and to appear intelligent. At that point, I was more devoted to my reputation than I was to Jesus. And because another devotion had slipped into first place in my heart, I became a peace-breaker. That's the way this works. When we are devoted to Christ and his kingdom, we are united. When other devotions slip in, our fellowship is fractured. The second temptation faced by those who who support mask mandates is the the devotion to our physical health and our physical well-being and the, the physical health of others. Those who support mask mandates do not want to have their health unnecessarily compromised or or put at risk. And they don't want to be part of a group that is unnecessarily putting at risk other people. And again, let me say, this this is tricky. Because that is a good and reasonable desire. It is a righteous desire. Our own larger catechism says that the the commandment against murder requires us to make careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of others and ourselves. It is good and right and honoring to God to take wise steps to protect your physical health and the physical health of others. It simply is not fair to say That seeking to protect your physical health is a failure of faith or that it is unbelieving cowardice. It's not. (laughs) We wear a seatbelt in the car and we look both ways before we cross the street because it is good and right to do so. If wearing a mask can slow the spread of COVID-19, it is not an act of faithless fear to wear one. It is an act of wisdom and love. But protecting your physical health, protecting our physical health, and protecting the physical health of others can become an idol. It cannot be our first devotion. We know this instinctively when we we sort of revere those Christians throughout history who have put their physical health at risk to care for and love others well. We know the stories. We we know the stories throughout history. People who who have put their physical health at risk to love others, to serve others, to to do good. And we see that there is something good and right and beautiful about the risks that they take. And so we understand instinctively that, that protecting our physical health cannot be our first devotion. Because if it is our first devotion, it will lead us astray. It will cause the boat to wobble. So what's the balance? What's the the balance between righteous, loving risk to love others well 
and sinful carelessness, sinful disregard for our physical well-being. It's not easy to discern. It takes many counselors. It takes much patience. And, and even after much discussion, we may not all agree. But we must see that at this point, if you are tempted to make your physical health your first devotion, it will break community. It will lead to sinful divisions. So those are the temptations faced by those who support masks. <laughs> what about the temptations faced by those who, who oppose them? Well, I actually think the first temptation they face is very similar to the first temptation faced by those who are in favor of masks. That is a, a temptation to appear educated and intelligent, a, a, a commitment, a devotion to the, their reputation to be wise and discerning. Those who oppose masks among us. They do not want to be associated with those who, who just swallow all the propaganda spewed out by the mainstream media. Being in the know, being discerning, not being gullible, that is important to some of us. And again, this is not wrong. That's what makes this so tricky. This is not a bad thing. That's actually good. It's as, as it should be. We, we ought to be, as I said, committed to the truth. And we ought to recognize that human beings lie and twist the truth for their own purposes. And so we do need to be discerning. We do need to be committed to knowing and discovering the truth. But the peacemaking comes when we are more devoted to our reputation, when we are more devoted to being perceived as, as wise and discerning than we are to the fellowship of Jesus' disciples. I think of the story of the sinful woman, the woman who came into the Pharisee's household as, as Jesus was sitting there at table with the, the crowd. And this woman came up to Jesus and she she anointed his feet with an expensive perfume. And as this was taking place, do you remember what the Pharisee said? If only Jesus knew. If only Jesus wasn't gullible. If only Jesus wasn't so undiscerning. If only he knew, then he would not associate with such a person. Jesus did not allow a desire to be seen as in the know. Keep him from loving this woman. I know the parallels aren't exact, but I am convinced that we must likewise be willing to be seen as ignorant and simple for the sake of loving one another well. A second temptation faced by those who, who oppose masks is the temptation to be devoted to our Freedom. Those who oppose mask mandates are often concerned about being unjustly subjected to yet more and more tyranny by those in power. 
The state already has too much power, they think, too much influence, too, too, too much ability to, to reach into our lives and make us do things their way. It already controls and regulates too many things, and some people just are not willing to let them hold sway in one more area of life. Sure, masks may not be that big a deal in and of themselves, but if we give in on this, what's next? If we give them an inch, they will take a mile. And again... This is not wrong. <laughs> there is such a thing as tyranny. Those with power tend to lord it over others. We ought not to be foolish. And as we've seen in our own study of Acts just a few weeks before Easter, there are those times when, when God's people must say to those in authority, no, I will not comply. But again... The problem comes when our refusal to obey, when our refusal to submit is rooted not in our devotion to Jesus, but in our devotion to ourselves. When this is the case, when we are devoted to our own freedom more than anything else, we become peace breakers. And so... I could go on. We, we, we've seen two temptations on each side. And, and of course, we could, we could add to either list. And, and probably, I haven't yet exactly articulated your particular temptation. You're probably thinking, well, that's close, but that's not exactly right. That's not exactly the way that, that I would have said it. Everybody I read this to before today said that to me. Well, I don't know. That's not exactly right. All right. Then do it for yourself. You need to ask yourself why you get so worked up about masks. You need to ask yourself, whether you're for them or for, against them, what do you think is at stake? What is at risk? What is the devotion that is being threatened or compromised? You must do that for yourself. But hopefully, however you end up articulating your particular temptation, you have seen enough to recognize that the temptation to break peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ over masks is rooted in some idolatrous devotion, in something that you are devoted to more than you are devoted to Jesus and his kingdom. So the question that we must wrestle with is this. How do people who disagree about masks Maintain unity of heart and soul. That oneness that ought to be theirs in Christ. How do we keep ourselves from getting ensnared by idolatrous devotions? And I say we must wrestle with this question. It is not optional. <laughs> because if we divide over masks... If we break fellowship with one another because we have different opinions about whether you should wear a mask when you're in the building, then we discredit the gospel and we cause the name of God to be blasphemed among us. Masks and mask policies ought to be matters of indifference. 
Just as Paul said circumcision was a matter of indifference in the early church, mask policies ought to be matters of indifference in the church today. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It simply does not matter whether you are for circumcision or against circumcision. It doesn't matter whether you are circumcised or, or not. What matters is faith working through love. Circumcision, from Paul's perspective, was a matter of indifference in the early church. Now don't misunderstand what that means. Yes, circumcision is a matter of indifference. It makes no difference in your standing in the church, just as I am saying is true of, of masks. Your righteousness is not tied to your view of mask mandates. But that doesn't necessarily mean that masks, therefore, ought to be optional because they are matters of indifference. That doesn't mean that mask mandates are necessarily anti-gospel. Because Paul said that circumcision was nothing. It was a matter of indifference. And yet, on one occasion, he had his apprentice circumcised to keep the peace in the church. And on another occasion, he adamantly refused to do so. He had Timothy circumcised, and he absolutely refused to have Titus circumcised. Why? Because context matters. There's a way of love that you're trying to discern. There's a, there's a way forward in this particular context where Jesus can be honored. And the fact that masks are indifferent doesn't mean, therefore, that masks ought to be optional. There's times to wear them and require them, and there's times not to. And so saying that masks are a matter of indifference does not settle the question of what our mask policy ought to be. But... It does tell us what the goal of our mass policy cannot be. The goal of our mass policy cannot be to impose one view on everybody in the congregation. It cannot be to require everybody to, to view them the same way. There is a place for persuasion and dialogue. Please, talk to one another. Share the evidence that has convinced you with, with others. Have conversation but our mask policy cannot depend upon everyone having the same view of mask. If our unity requires a unified view of mask, then it is not gospel unity. But saying what the goal of our mask policy cannot be still leaves the question unanswered. And so, what is the goal? What ought to be the goal of our mask policy if it can't be to, to, to enforce a single view of masks? What should the goal be? Well, again, I think what we've seen this morning points us clearly towards one goal. The goal of our mask policy ought to be strengthening and encouraging the unity and the oneness of the body of believers. The goal of our mask policy must be to protect, to protect and to promote the peace of the church. And I want you to know that as the elders and the deacons have gathered regularly over the course of the last year to discuss how we are going to handle this pandemic, how we are going to respond, that has always from the beginning been our goal. We have been laboring throughout this entire ordeal 
to make decisions that best protect and promote the peace of the church. No doubt our efforts have been imperfect. No doubt you could list the number of ways that you disagree with the decisions that we have made. But our efforts have been sincere and they have been earnest. We have prayerfully labored to lead this congregation in the way of love. That was the motivation behind the original decision made over a year ago to, to when we resumed meeting in person to require masks in the building. Our goal was to protect and to promote the, the peace of the church. You need to know this. You need to understand this. That decision was not made because the session had a unified view of the science. We didn't. There was disagreement even among the elders and the deacons about the effectiveness of masks. But at that time, we decided that the best way to protect and promote the peace of the church was to require masks when we gathered. Because we reasoned that it was easier to ask someone who doesn't believe masks work to put one on anyway than it was to ask someone who believes masks work to gather in a context where they were not being worn. That was our goal. How do we protect and promote the, the peace of the church? Our reasoning may or may not have been sound. <laughs> we, we may be in error. But if we are in error, if our mass policy is in error, it is not because we are in error about the science of masks. The, effect is, the effectiveness of masks was never our main concern. Our concern was to maintain and to nurture the peace of the church. And that was actually the same motivation behind our more recent decision to have a mask optional gathering outside under a tent to watch the live stream together. We were seeking to love well the members of our body and to maintain and to promote the, the peace of the church. Now, in retrospect, that decision may have been spectacularly bad. That, that decision may have been insulting to, to many who, who oppose masks. I've certainly gotten that impression this week. Maybe I heard from everybody who was offended by it. I don't know. Maybe many people thought it was, a, many others thought it was a good idea. I don't know. I'll get feedback tonight uh, about how things went. But, but at least my first impression is that idea was spectacularly bad. I've been told that we are treating those who oppose masks like stepchildren, like lepers, like naughty children sent to time out. And if that is where you are feeling, I am sorry. Please know that was not our intention. Our intention from the beginning has been to protect and to promote the peace of the church. So how do we do that moving forward? We've been at this for a year. We are tired. What is the way of love? What is the way to, to continue protecting the, the peace and the, the, the purity of the church? I, I honestly don't know for sure. This, this past year has felt sort of like groping along a precipice in the, the pitch black of night during a thunderstorm, trying to find just the next foothold, the next place to, to grab. We can't see very far down the road. We have no idea where we're going, and we realize we could slip and fall at any moment, and it has been exhausting. But regardless of the challenges of seeing the path, regardless of the challenges of figuring out what's the best next step, Regardless of how hard that is, we know the goal. 
We know the goal. We know what it is we are seeking to accomplish. We know where it is we are going. We know, regardless of how, how hard it is to discern the next best step, we know that we are looking for the way of love. We are looking for a way for people who disagree and who disagree sharply at times to be and to remain of one heart and one soul because our first devotion is to Jesus and his kingdom. That's the goal. That's the goal that the session will have in mind to tomorrow evening when we meet to review our policies and to review the, the, the plan. When the elders and the deacons get together, that will be the goal that we have in mind. And let me say that we welcome your feedback. We, we welcome your input. We do want to hear from you. I appreciate it if it's in a calm tone. <laughs> but we do want to hear from you. We want to know what you are feeling. We want to know what you are thinking. But you need to know this, that while we want to hear from you, our goal will not be to please you. Our goal will not be to give you even the slightest measure of what you want. That's simply not the goal. Our devotion is not to making everyone happy. Our, goal, our, our devotion is not to, to finding some compromise where everybody gets something and nobody's fully satisfied. That is the way of the world. Our goal will be to help you live in peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Our goal will be to protect the unity of heart and soul that is ours in Jesus Christ. Even if that means we have to ask you to completely die to all of your preferences. See, that's what Jesus demands. That is what Jesus demands of all who would be his disciples. They must deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him. And that includes mask policies. That includes submitting to elders who adopt mask policies that you don't particularly care for. I'm not saying that's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to pick the worst policy. We're not trying to pick the policy that will make the most people mad. But... Some of you will not like the policies we adopt. Some of you will, will think they are naive and ignorant. That's okay. Are you ready to die to yourself? Are you ready to die to your preferences? I know it's a big ask, but it's Jesus' ask. It's what he demands of his disciples. And because the demand comes from Jesus, it comes with a promise. If you will die, you will rise, even as he rose on Easter Sunday. If you will die to yourself, if you will die to your preferences, if you will lose your life to follow him, you will know life. And yes, that refers to life in the age to come, but that refers to life here and now. And part of that life is the goodness, the sweetness, the joy of the community that we can have with one another. It is good when believers dwell together in unity. It is sweet and if we are willing to die to ourselves and to our own preferences, and if we are willing to devote ourselves first to Jesus and his kingdom, then we will be part of a family that dwells together in sweet fellowship. When you devote yourself to anything else, that fellowship is broken. But when you devote yourself to him by his spirit, he knits us together in love. And because he does that, 
because such unity can be ours through Jesus Christ. That is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen.